Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Honestly, I kind of thought, like, I left the gym today, and no one, like, I, I was, like, checking my phone. I'm all ready to be governor of the state of Virginia. <laughs> oh, man. Hello, and welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Sarah Cliff, sitting in today for Matt Iglesias, who is not here. I don't know where he is. Here with Jane Coaston, Dylan Scott. Um, So we are here to talk about the state of Virginia, which seems to be in a bit of a state of dumpster fire, I believe is the technical term for what's going on there. And Uh, I, I am here to announce my run for governor of the state of Virginia. It's... I refuse to move to the state of Virginia, but honestly, I think that's probably for the best. I mean, given the record we've seen of some Virginians, you know, I think you do a stand-up job. They need an outsider. It's true. They need an outsider. (laughs) need to to come in, take charge. So I think we should start because a lot has happened in the course of like— what one week? It's two been weeks? one week. It's, I wrote okay, about so this. You wrote about last... this, like Dylan. Like, run us through, like, what actually like leads us to this moment of dumpster fire that we are in. So, um, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam somewhat recently made some comments about an abortion law uh, that's being considered in the Virginia legislature that got a lot of attention from conservatives. Um, the law, I don't know how much we want to go into the details. Basically, it, it rolls back some of the uh, abortion restrictions in the state, uh, particularly for third-term abortions, which obviously are usually undertaken only in the most dire of circumstances. Um, and I think it's fair to say that Governor Northam made some inelegant comments about the law, um, and some conservatives basically construed it as an endorsement of killing babies. Um, President Trump actually made an allusion to it during his State of the Union address. And so I think that made uh, Governor Northam sort of the the villain of the week for a lot of people in right-wing media. And so some pictures began to surface from his medical school yearbook in 1984 uh, that showed two people in one in blackface and one dressed in KKK robes. And so that immediately became a story. The Virginian pilot and the Washington Post got a hold of the yearbook as well, so we knew that this was real. And then that's kind of when things started snowballing very quickly. Um, First, Governor Northam said that, uh, sort of acknowledged that he was one of the people in the picture and apologized. Um, There were pretty rapidly a lot of calls for him to step down. Um, And that was all, that was last Friday when the pictures came out and he initially 
apologized was last Friday. By Saturday, he was actually walking back that apology, um, saying he wasn't actually one of the people in the in the photo and that he would not um, be stepping down anytime soon. And so that 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 was kind of the the launching point. And so he had a lot of national Democrats and Democrats in the state saying that Northam needed to step down for obvious reasons. And waiting in the wings was Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, who is black. I think it's worth noting he had just gotten a lot of attention for sitting out a Robert E. Lee tribute uh, in the state Senate. And so there were a lot of you know Tim Kaine, Bernie Sanders. There were a lot of national Democrats who said Northam should step step aside. We have Justin Fairfax ready to step in. Well, then earlier this week, um, it, it was revealed that there had actually been sexual assault allegations made against Justin Fairfax in 2004. A California professor named uh, Vanessa Tyson uh, has now came up with, come at, came out with a full statement uh, detailing an incident back then uh, that Fairfax says he believes was consensual. Very clearly, Professor Tyson feels differently, um, and so that kind of, that immediately obviously started to complicate things because now you had the governor had pictures in his yearbook and of people in blackface and KKK robes. His successor to be, Justin Fairfax, now was facing sexual assault allegations. Third in line for the governor is Mark Herring, um, the attorney general, uh, a lifelong kind of public servant. And then we found out yesterday morning that he had also had put on blackface at one point in his life back in 1980. And this wasn't discovered. He proactively yeah, really puts yeah. out there were, a there statement. Were rumors, there were rumors kind of point. floating around the Virginia Capitol, and he proactively came out with a statement acknowledging that he too had worn b- the blackface back in the 1980s, apologizing for it, saying it was a one-time thing, and that he uh, recognized sort of how how bad that that was. And so now we're in a, we're in a position where all three of the top Democrats, the full kind of governor line of secession, um, have either been implicated in wearing blackface at one point in their life or sexually assaulting someone. Uh, fourth in line for the governor is um, is the Republican House Speaker uh, Kirk Cox, who is in that office only because during the 2017 elections, the Virginia House was actually evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats when all was said in a and done on election day with one election still outstanding, and that election was actually tied. And so to resolve that race, they pulled the name out of a bowl. That name was the Republican candidate, which swung major- the majority in the House to the Republicans and made Kirk Cox Speaker of the House. So yeah, I think that uh, that was my best run. That was rundown. really good. That was helpful. Um, it's a mess. That's 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 the takeaway, I think, and, in the end. And what gets me is it was also yesterday that it came out that the Republican head of the Virginia Senate. Yes. He was yearbook editor when of a yearbook in which that also apparently contained a great deal of kind of blackface and racist materials. Though he is claiming that, you know, there were a bunch of people who were running these yearbooks and he didn't really have anything to do with it. Haven't figured out where he falls in the line of secession yet, I, but presumably he's somewhere in there. Yeah. Just right above Jane. Yeah. I again I am rested and ready. So um, I feel like Jane, you wrote a really good piece today about right. Blackface and kind of its role in racism. And like, right. can you talk a little bit about you know, yeah. what you've been writing? So, and So I wrote a piece because I think that it's been interesting how some conservatives have been thinking about this. Because obviously there's kind of the ha-ha Virginia Democrats WTF response, which I think is an entirely logical one when you watch an entire party Especially when Northam was battling Ed Gillespie in 2017, a lot of that campaign had to do with race, where there was an ad that was not from the Northam campaign, but he accepted, I think, as an in-kind donation that featured a truck with Trump stuff, like chasing down 
small minority children for Northam. And I, I think it was also interesting because Northam is, you know, in 2009, Republicans tried to get him to switch to being a Republican. He, he voted for George W. Bush twice. And it very much was Northam at the time seeing kind of like what the tea leaves looked like and realizing that if Ed Gillespie, who had basically, you know, Steve Bannon even said that the reason why Gillespie would win this election is because he's taken on the mantle of Trumpism. Because in order to get the Republican nomination, Ed Gillespie had to beat Corey Stewart, our favorite neo-Confederate, um, who then later ran for Senate and lost. But this was a campaign in which race played a really prominent role. It started out that, that people thought that maybe they would talk about like taxation and that was never going to happen. But so there was you know a lot of folks on the right who were like, Northam made all these claims about Ed Gillespie being this horrible racist. And then it turns out that he wore blackface and the whole thing. And especially because then Northam gave a press conference last Saturday where he d he said that, you know, he was not one of the two people in that picture, but he had done blackface to impersonate Michael Jackson and then asked his wife, like, should I moonwalk? And his wife, the real hero in the story, said no. Yeah. But it's been interesting because I think that the idea of blackface First and foremost, in my piece, I talked about how, you know, there's a piece in National Review that said that, you know, so many people have done blackface in kind of various milieus that to, quote unquote, cancel all of them would seem unworkable. And secondly, I think that there were some who attempted to differentiate the Al Jolson traditional, quote unquote, style blackface that is to some clearly more racist than, for example, in one of Northam's yearbooks, there's also someone who is doing blackface to pretend to be Diana Ross. And then the quote is like, did you ever think Diana Ross would make it to medical school? Actually, Diana Ross's older sibling uh, did go to medical school, just to be clear. But that, like, that's different, that like blackface's imitation is perhaps less racist or not racist, though it's just ignorant. And I made the point that, no, it's absolutely racist. I mean, the chutzpah to believe that by putting on dark makeup or literal shoe polish, in the case of Ralph Northam, who explained how he did this, because... Man, we are not sending our best, apparently, to the Virginia State House. But um, you know, the idea that you could put on blackness in that sense, or attempt to imitate specifically, or you know, use kind of someone's identity as a costume. And I think um Jamal Bowie, who's a columnist now at the New York Times, he raised the point of blackface has traditionally been, you know, you people wore it. Not only to insult African-Americans, but to attempt to take part in what they believed the black experience was, which is one of being like free and cool and interesting. And so even now, when you see people wearing blackface at like terrible college parties, it's always in this implication that, you know, you can do this and then you can just put away your responsibilities because now you can take on the mantle of this idea of blackness that has nothing to do with black people because you are impersonating your own idea of what black people are like. You are not impersonating an actual black person. Like no one asked. And it was interesting also because you know you hear some people making these suits, you know, well, we thought it was okay back then. And you know, I, I raised the point like 
you thought it was okay, but African-Americans never did. Frederick Douglass spoke out against it in 1848. The NAACP suit went to federal court over Amos and Andy, a famous black minstrel radio show that was moving to television in 1951. But, you know, understandably, both Frederick Douglass and the NAACP had a lot of other things to do in 1848 and in 1951 relating to ending the second class stratification of African-Americans in the United States. And so this comes up, it feels like it comes up often, not necessarily with politicians, though now we're starting, you know, the moment people were like, wait, medical schools have yearbooks? Like (laughs) everybody's getting apparently their yearbook looked at, which my high school yearbook is very boring. And Michigan had college yearbooks, but I can't imagine wanting to look at a yearbook of a class of like 3,000 people. Um, The idea that this, because it's so common, that makes it less offensive doesn't make any sense. And the idea that like there's some sort of gradations of blackface, that some blackface is more raced and and some blackface is less racist. And, you know, there is such thing as being as racist ignorance. There is such thing as racist stupidity. Not every work of racism is the type of racism that saw, you know, thousands of lynchings in the early 20th century. Sometimes it's the kind of lynch uh, racism that makes you believe that you could look like Diana Ross if you painted yourself with shoe polish. Well, and as that relates to Northam, I think what's been jarring here is like his win in 2017 was imbued with a lot of meaning because right. it was, you know, the first big election after Trump had come into office. It came shortly after the uh, crisis in Charlottesville. Right. Um, and so, like, it, w- it was given a lot of, like, hey, the, and, and Ed Gillespie had run a pretty racially tinged campaign, to put it mildly. And so when he won, I think it was taken by a lot of people as sort of this victory for kind of progressive values, particularly on issues of race. And yet, like, Northam was always an unlikely champion for those kind of values. Right. Like, I think there was a lot, there was a great deal of projection. I mean, yes, throughout yeah. that entire exactly. special election of just saying Northam as kind of the load star of Democrats taking back political power when, you know, Ralph Northam was not exactly Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to right. put it lately. Like, as I understand it, he, for before Charlottesville, he had kind of waffled on the Confederate monuments question. He had said that really should be more of a local issue. It was only after Charlottesville that he said, like, well, we should probably put those statues in museums. Obviously, he had things in his past that just, yeah, just made him an unlikely messenger um, that I think, you know, has made, that's what made, has made this a lot more complicated, I think, for a lot of people because, yes, they imbued his victory with a lot of meaning that that he himself, just as an individual, as a politician, necessarily hadn't earned um, with his record and his values. Yeah, and I think, like, with how this has unfolded, now it leaves at this, at this place that kind of touches on some of the stuff you were bringing up, Jane, about, you know, how common this might have been in an era. And this idea right. of, like, I feel like one refrain I have seen out there and heard is, like, well, if we start getting rid of everyone who did blackface, like, who are we going to be left with? I don't know. The people who did not do blackface. I think there was a slate piece that uh, made the point that, like, Democrats should have no compunction whatsoever of, like, if you have done blackface or engaged in that kind of activity or if you are credibly accused of what uh, Fairfax has been accused of. And I think that you're starting to see some conflict among women's groups on how much to confront him about that. But just like, oh, if we get rid of everyone who did blackface, then we'll have gotten rid of everyone in politics who did blackface and um I think I'm and then okay we will not have yeah, and I'm like oh, elected so, officials. Who yeah, and I, I think that it goes to this idea that being an elected official is not a right, 
It is a like a privilege that is bestowed on a really small number of people. Like it is difficult to run for office at basically every level. You know, in DC, if we wanted to run for ANC, I've, I had a friend who did so and which won. is our local, our teeny tiny local, our government. tiny local government in which you have apparently very angry meetings with people. But even doing that, it takes a level of decision making and a lot of effort and. The idea that, like, if we get rid of all of these people who did this, I'm like, yes, and then we could replace them with people who didn't, and then that then we have all we can you know go back to like really big problems and not blackface anything but blackface, not literally anything, because I feel like next week something else is going to happen, and I'll have to double back and being like, when I said anything but blackface, I did not mean anything. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll we'll come back and maybe talk a little bit about what happens next in Virginia. Right. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, welcome back. So we are talking about all the craziness that is Virginia. And I think we're at this very odd point, you know, so you mentioned that really nice column that Jamel wrote. And I think one of the things like that was written four days ago when it seemed like Ralph Northam would not be in office by now. Now we're in this kind of odd position where it seems like for so many, for the constellation of things that have happened that Dylan was describing, that Northam 
might actually weather this when you actually start looking at the mechanisms. So what has happened since, as you've seen the congressional delegation from Virginia, you know, come out saying he should resign. You've seen Terry McAuliffe, former Democratic governor of Virginia, a heavyweight in Democratic politics, saying that he should resign. Even with all that go, you know, I think in a lot of ways in these situations, parties can be pretty powerful. In a way, this, you know, at first this reminded me a lot of the Anthony Weiner scandal where he was really trying to hold on and like it just became increasingly clear and snowballing as much as he fought it like he was not going to be able to stay in the house. I don't really know how this plays out with Northam. You know, it doesn't seem like there's actually much grounds for him to be impeached on at this point. Uh, and it raises an interesting question of, you know, is he going to weather this? And I think you actually do see a number of examples of governors, people like Mark Sanford, for example, in South Carolina, being able to weather, you know, I think that might be what's a little bit different about someone like Anthony Weiner, who's in Congress, who's serving as one of many, versus someone who's at the very top of a state government, seems to have more power to weather a storm like this one. And it doesn't seem totally implausible to me that he just might ride out this term right. as governor, that he might, you know, this blackface thing, it's going to pass and it'll just be out there and we'll have a governor who's serving in Virginia who who did this. And, you know, that might be the case for everyone who's wrapped up in this at this point, that we just kind of move on to the next thing, which seemed very, very implausible if you go back to, you know, a week ago at the beginning of Dylan's timeline. Well, and that's where the sexual assault allegations against Fairfax and the, uh, you know, Mark Herring's own blackface scandal become so important because now you just kind of have a question of raw power, right? Like Democrats are in isolation. It certainly seems like if we were, you know, if Democrats were to apply, um, I think the rules that they would like to apply in these situations, Ralph Northam should resign, Justin Fairfax should resign, Mark Herring should resign. But then you're left with the very uncomfortable reality that that would hand over power of the Virginia state government to Republicans. And so I think that's where we've seen a lot of this waffling. And I think that has empowered Northam to sort of hunker down in his office and, and, and ride this out for a little while longer. Right. I, it's interesting. Um, I'm seeing kind of the same concerns about that that you saw a little bit in Alabama's special election um, to replace uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, where there were credible allegations against Roy Moore. And you saw conservatives having this, you know, the literal back and forth of like, I'm going to vote for Doug Jones, not because I like Doug Jones, but because the allegations against Roy Moore are so bad You know, of him going after teenage girls, essentially. And those are so bad that I can live with changing the balance of power in the Senate somewhat if it ensures that Roy Moore is not Alabama state senator. And then you saw other conservatives saying like, no, Doug Jones is pro-choice. Doug Jones would be very bad for Alabama values. And while Roy Moore, it, you know, this isn't great. We There was a lot of, again, yearbooks came up um, a lot. You know, I, I really thought that at some, you know, following high school that I would not ever need to think about yearbooks ever again. But apparently that was wrong. And but you saw, you know, OK, you know, there there's some questions about the allegations against more. But overall, you know, we should circle the wagons. And it goes to something that um, I'm interested in, in which both Democrats and Republicans think the other side always circles the wagons and always protects their own and will only go after the opposition. And yet we see on, you know, in these two cases that that's not always entirely true. 
whether or not that results in Northam getting kicked out of office or whether or not that resulted in you know, that decision resulted in Doug Jones's victory ultimately, because I think a lot of the polling in Alabama showed that a lot of Republicans just were like, I'm not doing this. I stay, stayed home and didn't vote at all. But there's a lot more context and gray area within each political party when something like this happens, because the balance of power matters, but also does the balance of morality. And we even saw that, you know, with how um, I know you know, our colleague Laura McGann still gets a lot of emails about when Kirsten Gillibrand helped push Al Franken out over uh, allegations of sexual harassment. And this idea that, like, Republicans would have never done that. Why do we have to take the high road? And, like, this idea that, like, both parties simultaneously either always take the high road or always take the low road and that it's just not true. Yeah, and it sort of becomes this question of like, yeah, when when the, it, I'm not, I would never suggest that it was like easy for Kirsten Gillibrand to say Al Franken no. should go, but like there wasn't necessarily like a cost there. Like you had a Democratic mm-hmm. governor who you knew would appoint Al Franken's uh, replacement. Or I, I also think of the mo- more recent example of uh, House Republicans and Steve King. Like there was not much. There, you know, he had already won his reelection, um, and there was just not, you know, and so stripping him of his committee assignments, you know, was was basically a sort of no cost move. Like it wasn't going to change anything. It wasn't even going to add one more seat to the Democratic column in the House. It's really the these kind of moments. Doug Jones is a good example. And I think now the the situation in Virginia is another one where like when you're talking about the ultimate swing of power and or an actual swing in power, and obviously politics is ultimately an exercise of power, that that whether you're able and willing to sort of make those difficult choices and and live up to your va- values in those moments is, I think, the real test of, of I don't know, political courage. And that's, you know, I think we're being kind of presented with maybe our most uh, stark example of that right now. Exactly. I, I think it's also notable with Steve King, though, he is still serving in Congress. Totally, like, right. totally. Like, I think that shows, you know, how this is not taken like at the level that we might expect it to be. If we have Northam still serving as governor a year from now, we have Steve King serving yeah. in Congress. It feels like it shows an acceptance for, you know, this kind of racism for, you know, for using blackface. You know, at the same time though, I I actually don't understand, maybe because you've been looking at this, Dylan, you've a better grasp on this, on what can actually be done at this point to force Northam out. Like usually, you know, what happens, like when I think back to, you know, other, you know, folks who've stepped down, like the Wiener, Anthony Wiener, for example, like it was just this snowballing of calls. And we've basically seen, I think, you know, the the Virginia congressional delegation, you know, a lot of prominent Democrats call for him to step down. Um, it seems like the levers are somewhat limited at this point. Yeah, you have public shame and public pressure. But like, as I understand it, like in talking to a couple of uh, election law professors over the last week, like this is not an impeachable offense by any means. Obviously, you'd need to get Republican buy-in on that anyway. And um, and so, yeah, you basically and I think that's where, again, the Fairfax and Herring situations complicate this a lot. And I do think like basically there's a lot of speculation about sort of like how much has Donald Trump taught politicians that if you just like batten down the hatches and ride this kind of stuff out, 
can you can you survive it? And and I think the other thing that we maybe haven't mentioned that's worth noting is like Virginia is strange in that it has a one term limit for its governors. And so while the future of uh, Ralph Northam's political career beyond being Virginia governor might be very <laughs> might be dead for all intents and purposes, he wasn't ever even going to be running for reelection. And so there's just not a lot of levers for a guy constitutionally set in office for the next three years and can't even run for reelection anyway. So right, what can you really do to 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 pressure him to to get out at a certain point. And especially because I think that you know it 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 kind of actually reminds me not just of Donald Trump but of kind of Bill Clinton. This idea that the allegations against him are very very bad. But on the other hand, you know his when in 1998, you know, when Clinton was impeached by the House, his popularity with voters went up. And I think there very much is a sense of like, okay, this is bad, but he's ours. And I don't think Democrats have that with Northam, though, because I feel as if this very much was a race that was more about sending a message to Republicans and to Trump. And so I don't think that that kind of loyalty would remain. But I also think that when you start – because I think that the gradations would okay, be like, okay, Northam should go. And I think I've seen a lot of people saying that Northam should go not just for the photograph itself, but for that press conference and like for the efforts to kind of like waffle on whether because he first said that he was in the photograph and then he said he spoke with people and now he remembers that he's not in the photograph, which raised a lot of questions. Um, Namely, one, where did the Klan robe come from? And (laughs) two, like, how do you I thought I was in this photograph, but I'm definitely not in that photograph. Doesn't make any sense to me. But I think that if it were just Northam, I feel as if it's a much easier decision. And I think that that's something, you know, I personally, I, I ho- currently hold no power in the state of Virginia n- for now. But I, you know, I think Northam should go. And then I think that you know, the allegations against Fairfax and then the, you know, Herring coming out with this. And I also think that a piece of this that's important, um, just for added context, is that the photographs, are re- like the first photograph of Northam originally re- arose on a right-wing site with connections to actually Corey Stewart's campaign and to Roy Moore's campaign, uh, Big League Politics, and Patrick Howley, who is very well known within Washington conservative media circles um, because he's worked for a lot of conservative media outlets before uh, going to big league politics. And I think that there are some people, especially, you know, some Democrats who really think that this is actually all about Northam's comments on abortion. And if that wouldn't, if he wouldn't have said that, this photograph wouldn't have come out and then we wouldn't have this problem at all. But I also think we can't put this back in the box. And at this point, I think for Democrats, I understand the reticence to kind of just say like a pox on all of these people this is ridiculous and i think that politically it makes a lot of sense to say like okay northam should go but the allegations against fairfax we would need a lot more information which i think is what virginia democrats are kind of saying right now and that herring appears to be willing to take the steps he needs to to apologize and he came out with that before the photograph was found um as far as i know but i think that you know politically it makes sense to make that stand but i don't know if that makes sense on kind of 
on the moral stage that I think a lot of Democrats would hope that they could stand upon. I think the other thing to account for, too, with Northam specifically, is there was some really good reporting in Politico this morning that was like an, a window into Ralph Northam's last few days. And one of the points they made is that he's actually spent a lot more time start talking to Republican leaders in the legislature than Democrats. And Jane, you mentioned before that Republicans had actually tried to recruit him to their party in the right. past. And they and just so, made a tax deal. like Right. And so to, I think yeah. I think there's increasingly a picture of a guy who knows that he has basically become a pariah within the Democratic party there was also some reporting not that I can't confirm it I'm not I don't know for sure how true it is that Northam had even considered switching to uh to becoming an yeah. independent and so I think you got this picture of a guy who's in yeah who knows that he's a prior within the Democratic party and is maybe willing to sort of accept that and embrace that if it allows him to hold on, on to power for the time being. So, Sarah, to the point that you kind of launched this entire conversation with, like, there may just be a point where Democrats don't have any sway over this guy because he can he's starting to think of himself less as a Democrat and more as just, like, an isolated politician who's ho- trying to hold on to the office that he has. Well, that kind of brings up an issue you brought up in your piece, Jane. Like, how do you see conser- – like, what's the spectrum of how you're saying conservatives reacting to this, you know, both from the like dunking on Democrats up yeah. through like he should resign or like is there like the space of this was a long time ago, you know, it's not a result. Like how do I you see them see- navigating this? I think you're this? seeing all of that. I think um, with regard to Fairfax, I think there is a sense that like after Kavanaugh and especially since um, most recently both Fairfax has hired the legal representation uh, that Brett Kavanaugh also used and his alleged accuser has hired the same legal representation that worked with uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford because that we're apparently that's what we're doing now. But I do think that the Fairfax allegations are actually, uh, I think, a little bit different because I think that many conservatives, while being very angry, I think that the allegations against Fairfax are being treated in their view a lot more gently and specifically. You know, there was uh, the Washington Post allegedly they knew about this, but they couldn't verify it. So they didn't run a piece on it. And I think you're seeing a lot of people like, well, you know, that's not how you handled Kavanaugh, even though I think that these two situations, uh, someone raised the point, you know, Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice Justin Fairfax, Lieutenant Governor of the state of Virginia. Like, obviously, it's a different, a different platform and two kind of different. Obviously, right. like just when you're like thinking through how newsroom works, you're yeah. just going to put more resources towards right. the exactly. Supreme Court justice than the Lieutenant Governor. Right. And but I do think that there's a sense that like you know we said for Kavanaugh, unless there was proof that the of these allegations, they shouldn't impact his ability to be on the court. And some think that that should hold the same for Fairfax, that unless there's more proof against him that Northam should resign and Fairfax should become governor. But I I do think it's interesting that on certain subjects, we are kind of like, if you did this 30 years ago, we'll kind of let that be. But on other subjects, we're like, you know, if you did this 30 years ago, it's a no-brainer that this should not be exculpatory. But I, I would like to note that in the case of Northam, he was in medical school and he was 25 years old. And he is either wearing a Klan robe or blackface or put that picture in his yearbook for some other reason. And, you know, 1984 was a while ago, but 1984 is also Jesse Jackson was running for president and doing pretty well, particularly in the state of Virginia. You know, he was attempting to run as a Democrat. Like, the 
what he did was deeply inappropriate at the time. And the fact that he didn't think so is not a sign that it was appropriate. It's a sign of a deep level of ignorance that would concern, you know, even if he had remained a private citizen and just stayed a doctor, I would be deeply concerned to find out that my doctor wore blackface or a Klan robe. I would not want that person to be my doctor. And so... I think that the how long ago were these allegations or or like it was a different time. It wasn't that different of a time. The fact that it was always blackface was always inappropriate. It was always wrong to do. It's just that the people who whom were subjected to it, namely African-Americans, have only within the last like 20, 30 years had the ability to speak out with any real degree of political and cultural influence and say, like, don't do that. Yeah, let's take a quick break, but I want to come back to the fact specific to that this was a medical school yearbook. I think that's worth talking a little bit about. So, you know, one thing I've thought about in this space is where this particular picture of Northam was found. And the fact was, I really agree with you, Jane, that I think the fact was in a medical school yearbook is something that gives me a lot of pause and, you know, worry. When you think of going into medicine, you're going to be treating all sorts of people. You know, Northam worked in the Army as a physician. He ended up becoming a pediatric neurologist. Um, You know, that is a profession that you're going to be put in touch with a lot of different people. You know, kids who are coming into your office, officers in the Army. And I think, you know, when you are a medical student, you're you're beyond high school at that point. You know, you're right. someone who has an undergraduate degree. You're pursuing a you know, you're learning how to take care of people, how to make people healthier. Like this is graduate education and graduate education that is preparing you for a career that's going to put you in touch with all sorts of different people. And I, I think it is, you know, notable to me at this moment when you are training for that profession that you are also finding it acceptable to, you know, either dress up in blackface or you think blackface is interesting enough and important enough to put on your yearbook page. Um, It it really jumps out at me that this is someone who is planning to head into a medical profession who is also the person who is participating in that behavior. Um, And and I think, you know, medicine has a long, very complicated, very terrible history of how it handles race, where there's a... um, just really horrific history of believing that African-Americans experience pain differently, that, you know, they can incur more pain, that it'll be fine. Um, there's a great video about terrible issues in um, maternity and um, women's health care where black women were essentially experimented on that one of our colleagues over on our video team did in collaboration with ProPublica. It's a really horrific history of how American medicine has treated minorities and one that still plays out this to this day where you right. even see studies about um, ambulances, for example, taking a longer time to get to minority neighborhoods and, you know, a different pain management given to people who are minorities. It's a really horrific history that this photo fits into. Right. And, you know, aside from having this person serve as my governor, I'd be pretty worried about someone who thinks blackface is okay serving as a doctor, knowing all of this is embedded in, you know, the history of American medicine. Right. Uh, There's been some really terrific reporting on uh, the absolute scandal that is maternal mortality, specifically among black women in the United States. And there was a great story in The New York Times a couple of months ago on this very issue in, you know, a woman basically losing her baby to just pure negligence by 
you know, medical professionals who saw in her not a mother in need of care, but someone to kind of foist off onto someone else. And so I think that the urge to forgive is something that is you know, completely understandable and I think in many cases a good thing. But forgiveness requires you know, full acknowledgement of what this really means and what that really meant. And I feel as if we didn't get that from Northam at all. We got a really weird press conference that made everything way worse. But we did not get, you know, an understanding of how absolutely wretched this is. And I think you saw that a little bit from Herring when he kind of came forward. But even with Herring, you know, I talked about this a little bit in the piece that he was attempting to dress up to look like 1980s hip hop legend Curtis Blow. And if you were listening to this, you know, you can pause and then go Google a picture of Curtis Blow uh, or listen to the song The Breaks. But you do, you're not going to do like, no, no, that's not the idea of like, ah, I'm going to like dress up as this person and to do that, I must change the color of my skin to something I believe is close to what Curtis Blow actually looks like. Like that shows just a level of ignorance that seems almost malignant in a sense. Like that 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 raises its own level of questions of just like believing that that is in some way ever appropriate. But I will, you know, in Herring's kind of when he came out with this, he did talk about how, you know, he's been speaking a lot to, you know, his African-American colleagues. But I, I'm reminded of there was a terrific photo that was taken of a African-American member of the kind of the Virginia, I believe she's on the Virginia Senate. I reached out to her yesterday and she's like, you know, she's in her 70s and she's like leaning on a car, looking down and just looks distraught and exhausted. And I just cannot imagine for the African-American members of the Virginia state legislature. And I think it's important to keep in mind, that, like Terry McAuliffe said during the 2017 campaign, that Ed Gillespie's campaign was the most racist in Virginia history, mm. which, you know, <laughs> I think that that was an excessively strong take, knowing the history of Virginia, knowing that it took the Supreme Court to you know, ruling and loving v. Virginia to declare that interracial marriage was legal. Um, Virginia has all obviously a long and torrid history of both you know slavery and Jim Crow and racism and you know efforts at segregation. Um, it was interesting because Jerry Falwell Jr. chimed in, and a lot of people noted that like Jerry Falwell's father formed a Christian academy with the explicit purpose of ensuring that white kids could go to that school and black kids could not go to that school. And so I think that, you know, in the midst of for many African-Americans, you know, in Virginia, in the midst of political success and wins and uh, and the ability to start really shaping policy, which I think is what a lot of folks were hoping for when they won in 2017. And to have to endure this, to have to have like the history of your state, the state, you know, a history you yourself have endured because the number of people who've reached out to me, like I went to the University of Richmond or I went to UVA and this is not uncommon, you know, there were people wearing blackface at you know parties in 2008 at, in 2011 to have to have that all shoved back on you again it must be absolutely exhausting well and i on the other side of that frankly like i hope that this does sort of shatter what i think has been a convenient fiction for a lot of white democrats that like yeah. oh, our our party has like moved beyond a lot of these issues and like right. we've even though like you know super predators was the 1990s and like the crime bill of the 1990s and we could you could go into like what was a lot of the sort of um, underground uh, 
underpinnings of the uh, of the 2008 campaign. Like the Democratic Party has has a much more like this is not it's not just going back to like the days of the KKK and the before the civil rights movement that like the Democratic Party has had some very real problems with race. And so I think that this has sort of been a wake up call that like, yes, we're coming off the back of a midterm elections that elected, you know, one of the most or the most diverse Congress, largely on the on the strength of Democratic voters and Democratic candidates in the 2018 midterms. But like these are all these are still very much live issues for the Democratic Party, even as they uh, as it's become very easy to sort of just point to what's been happening with the Republicans and your Steve Kings and your Donald Trumps and pretend that we've all got it figured out over right. on this side of the aisle. Yeah, exactly. I think that there there is a tendency to just be like, ah, well, like you have Steve King, we have no Steve King. But I'm like, no, you you have your own history. And like using racism as like a political cudgel really bothers me. The idea that like, haha, like, you know, you hear this sometimes from conservatives like, ah, Democrats, they are the party of the Klan. And I'm like, well, yes, because everyone was the party of the Klan in 1924. <laughs> in in Indiana, the Klan had like thousands and thousands of members in the 1920s and, be, you know, gained real power in Indiana state politics and wasn't alone. You know, the history of racism is a ha, racism has been a bipartisan activity for the entire history of this country. And there's no reason why that would change now. And like the idea that like, haha, he's a Democrat, like that's not that I don't understand how that's some sort of Trump card. The understanding like you know, I think that you're seeing from a lot of African-American writers and journalists, like, we knew this. We knew that people within every of every political stripe all have the ability to be racist because, you know, racism is something that is, it knows no political party or, you know, ideological strain. Like, it's woven within the fabric of this country and it's, you know, this country's biggest challenge. And the idea for Democrats to be thinking like that's not our problem, it makes it even more their problem. Right. And I think Virginia is a particularly kind of forum or potent uh, forum for this, given that it's both been trending dramatically towards the Democrats over the last few election cycles. And yet, obviously, it sort of has a uh, uniquely perverse haste with or history with race, racial yeah. issues. And so like that's that's part of, I think, the collision that we're seeing here over the last week or so. Well, we will stay tuned to see what happens next week in Virginia if Jane's governor by the end of the week. If- I'm extremely excited to announce my policy platform, which will include no blackface. That is or sexual harassment. If you want to talk more about Virginia, if you live in Virginia, come hang out in our weeds group. Tell us tell us what you're thinking about the situation. Our weeds group on Facebook, that is. And um, always check out the many amazing Vox Media podcasts. I believe you can hear Dylan on Today Explained. Not today. Next week. Next week. Next you can hear week. Dylan on Today Explained. So next week explained. Next, next week explained. Um, thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Jane. Thank you to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Um, the weeds will be back in your feeds next week. <laughs>